history over time kind of smoothed smooths out the the bumps and the bruises and the ugly spots of a movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and just makes it some kind of like really clean narrative, you know, Rosa sat down on a bus and, you know, some folks marched over a bridge and King got shot and then Obama, you know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> it's a no. really simplified narrative, but there were lots of kind of, you know, the creation of movements, I think is inherently messy. Um, Nobody really plans. It's not like people have a plan sitting around saying, oh, when an unarmed teen gets killed and his body lays in the street for, you know, five hours, uh, this is what we'll do. Do you know what I mean? People are kind of making this up on the fly. TheOAMNetwork.com Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get your free audiobook download by going to audibletrial.com slash OAM. That's audibletrial.com slash OAM. Welcome to the Rotcast. This will be the third installment in a series of podcasts we've been doing on the Black Lives Matter movement. In the first episode, we spoke with Corey Owens, who discussed the social media applications on the movement. And he provided an in-depth examination of how we are all sitting in different algorithmic bubbles when we're surfing the internet. While in the second episode, we spoke with Isaac and Jasmine McCaleb, and they were able to provide us with the perspectives of being an interracial couple in the United States, and with their thoughts on the future, where they have worries on where difficulties might lie for raising their biracial son. Now in the third episode, we had the immense pleasure of getting to talk with Wendy Thomas, who is presently working as a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University, and has been a longtime journalist in Memphis, Tennessee, working for over 11 years at the Commercial Appeal, where she was the assistant managing editor. While I'm positive we will be revisiting this subject, as so many of our social problems find themselves in the struggle of black America, Wendy provides us a synopsis and opinion that pulls from many years of experience in writing and reporting on society, and her words culminate into a conversation that only makes sense in trying to wrap this subject up. But it's without further ado that I give you your Rotcast. Just um, recap for me, BLM, in your mind, what, uh, what were your first thoughts when you heard about it? I'm trying to think of when I actually first heard about it. It's kind of, uh, I feel like it's been part of the public consciousness for a while maybe even before it actually had a name. Sure. Um, um, it, it kind of strikes me as an, Black Lives Matter strikes me as an echo of kind of earlier social justice movements. Um, mm-hmm. Whether it was I Am a Man or Black Power or um, uh, Women Seeking the Right to Vote. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there was kind of these, or, um, Gay rights, thinking about the Stonewall riots, you know, where there's kind of these flashpoints right. um, in society where then things take off. But it wasn't that things weren't happening before the flashpoint. It's just sometimes it seems like it takes uh, 
um, I think it was Dr. King who said, um, a riot is the language of the unheard. So the people who were unheard, it wasn't that they weren't speaking. Um, it's just now that people are paying attention. Right. Yeah, it's it's real interesting being, you know, social media kind of, kind of, this is the first one that I can really think of that social media has kind of, I don't know, but besides like, you know, the 99% thing that was kind of going on right, outside right. of that, I can't really think of anything that's been quite as big and has lasted quite as long as BLM has. Um, um, I think that like the, the technology is different. And I like to think about what would have happened, you know, when Dr. Martin Luther King was alive, if we had Twitter, you know, right. um, as far as organizing, Facebook. that would have been, yeah, been so it would have much been easier. completely different. It would have been completely different, you know, um, instead of having to rely on phone calls or newsletters or, you know, however they were distributing to be able to, I mean, if you're on Twitter and, um, you know, Michael Brown's body is laying in the street, you can almost follow in real time what's happening there. Right. And that's just pretty incredible. Uh, I think that it keeps people engaged in a way um, that they won't or they that they couldn't without that kind of technology. And I think being able to see for yourself what's going on has really changed um, the discussion. So back in, I hope I don't get the year wrong. I think it <laughs> might have been 54 when um, Emmett Till was killed. Um, mm. You know, he wasn't the first, you know, black boy to go to um, the South and get 55. Um, was, he wasn't the first black boy to go to the South and get lynched. You know what I mean? Like that wasn't, he right. was not the first. But his mother um, insisted that he have an open casket. And um, a photo of his just mutilated body was on the cover of, maybe it wasn't on the cover of Jet Magazine, but I know it was in Jet Magazine. Mm-hmm. And so that just kind of forced people to to look at the violence um, that, you know, some white Southerners were exacting against um, black people just for existing and being um, kind of that extrajudicial extra killings like you've seen um, with you know, Michael Brown or Eric Gardner or Freddie Gray or, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. So... You know, social media, Twitter, you can see those images instantly, you know, and everybody's walking around with the ability, you know, in their pocket to document history. Right. And I think those images, um, you know, a lot of times you might, well, a lot of times I'm sure a lot of people of color have experience where you tell somebody white about some experience that you thought was discriminatory. And it's like the white person is doing backbends to try to explain it away and say, well, it didn't happen like that. Or maybe you misunderstood. I think these videos, they don't erase that component, right? Um, but they make it a lot harder to argue that, no, you just misunderstood or no, that's not what really happened. Well, especially when you do have the videos that show it from before it happened all the way through the event. You get to literally right. see step by step what did happen. Right. Um, and I think it's and also a lot of these videos um, kind of show that what the police say isn't always correct, you know, Um when I was um, an editor at the Daily Paper in Memphis and we would get, you know, the police reports or what have you, those are taken like they're the gospel truth. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why we would assume that every 100% of what a human being writes or says is true. I mean, we wouldn't extend that kind of blind faith 
to anyone else. Especially you know? when it's in their best interest for of not it is. to, yeah, for of them to release the I mean, correct story. Right. I'm not saying that they're, you know, uh, morally suspect in a way that most humans are. I think police officers are human. You know what I mean? And right. if you're retelling a story, if you are retelling a story, we're probably going to tell it in a way that makes us look good. You know what sure. I mean? Or minimizes the ways in which we look bad or culpable or irresponsible or reckless mm-hmm. or unnecessarily violent or what have you. And so I think that's another great thing that's come out of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and again, it's nothing, it's nothing new. It's just there's more attention on it is that, um, you know, police make mistakes too and they make up things too and they lie too. Uh, it's not, certainly not to say all of them, but that happens. Yeah, that happens. I'm thinking of Walter Scott in um, South Carolina and what the, um, and I think I think in the initial police report, they even said that he was armed or there was some kind of discrepancy that then was like completely blown out of the water by the bystander video. Um, that the police didn't know this guy was taking, mm. you know, kind of standing beside. Well, if there hadn't been that video, the only narrative that would have been told about Walter Scott's death is what the police said. And the police Correct. lied. Right. You know, and so, um, you know, technology has just been a complete game changer. Right. And completely disruptive to this narrative that um, that the police have been allowed to control. Police and law enforcement, you know, in general. Help us keep the lights on. Go to theoamnetwork.com slash donate today. Your contributions will support us in our venture to create free content, free of charge, and free of restrictions. Donate $25 or more and get a free shirt from Ohm. Remember, your support matters. Head over to theoamnetwork.com slash donate. In pod, we trust. So what, what obstacles would you say that might be coming from that technology, if any? Or just what obstacles do you see facing Black Lives Matter in general? So the obstacles on the technology, that's interesting you would mention that because um, the New York Times just started this newsletter. It's called Race, something race-related. And um, so I was looking at it yesterday, and they had this kind of like interactive quiz where they were basically trying to make the point that having um, police body cams is not going to be the solution like people think it is and that the body cam still only capture something from one perspective mm-hmm. and based on how close the officer is, you may not be able to see what happened um, immediately before. And you may not be able to see all of what's happening even in that moment. Um, it was fascinating for people who are like, well, please see body cams. <laughs> well, that's just a really, so I think that's a start. And I think it's speaking to, wanting there to be a level of accountability and transparency. Sure. I think those are good instincts. But I often think we don't go the next step. Okay, well, what kind of body cams? And when will they be allowed to turn them on? And when will they be allowed to turn them off? Right. What kind of well, access will the public have to those? How long will they keep the video? You know, will, they, will police be able to go back and search video or something unrelated to try to ID suspects in something else? You know what I mean? Like, there's just a whole... Mm other set of questions that we have to be asking and not think, Oh, we got body cams. Okay, great. We're done. We hadn't even got started. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I think they already have been guilty of turning those off. If I'm not mistaken, I can't think of particular instances. What are the, what are the punishments when you turn it off? Do you know what I mean? Right. Uh, will the public get to know about 
those instances when they, you know, when police officers turn them off. Um, there's almost a lot of questions, I think, that still remain to be answered. So you were talking about how, uh, how it's interesting how you can watch these events unfold, you know, at the point where something starts in social media to where it ends. And I, I was listening to someone talk. I can't remember exactly who it was, but they were talking about how, how interesting this is going to be to go back and look at as um, historical documents later. It's a, it's a different time for us in, re- in regards to looking back at things. So you'll actually be able to see how things progressed. Um, how do you think this movement will be seen in 5, 10, 15 years? You know, I think that's interesting because, um, so I wouldn't consider myself necessarily like any expert on black history or civil rights history, but I probably read a little bit more than um, most mm-hmm. just because I'm a nerd and <laughs> I'm a journalist. And, right. Um, you have a vested you know, interest history. in looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah history, you know, um, they say that history doesn't rhyme, but it echoes. Ooh, so yeah. I think it's important to know the history so you can be able to identify the echoes. And so when you look at how, um, civil rights history has been retold. It's been distilled into a few very discreet moments. Mm. Um, And one of the reasons why I think that uh, Black Lives Matter has gotten some unfair criticism for not being organized or not having a clear identified leader or what have you is because people are willfully misremembering uh, the 1950s and the 1960s. And if you go back and read um, kind of the it's almost like getting a um, a quilt mm-hmm. and you look at it from one side and it looks pretty, you know, it might be patched together, but it's, it's beautiful. But if you were to take that thing apart and look on the other side, it would be a mess. Right. You know I mean, it wouldn't look be like back stitches and you could see where people would cut stuff. Out. I mean, like it would be a mess. And so I, I think like that, that analogy. Yeah. Like you know, history over time kind of smoothed, smooths out the, the bumps and the bruises and the ugly spots of a movement mm-hmm. um, and just makes it some kind of like really clean narrative, you know, Rosa sat down on a bus and, you know, some folks marched over a bridge and King got shot and then Obama, you know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> it's a no. really simplified narrative, but there were lots of kind of, you know, the creation of movements, I think is inherently messy. Um, Nobody really plans. It's not like people have a plan sitting around saying, oh, when an unarmed teen gets killed and his body lays in the street for, you know, five hours, uh, this is what we'll do. Do you know what I mean? People are kind of making this up on the fly. Mm -hmm. And they got to figure out how to answer it correctly and, and, uh, you know, or at least in a way that is the best response. And I think that, yes, I think it's just different. I think it's different. And I think... That, um, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how history remembers this. And I think that the technology may create a different recollection, too, because, you know, in 20 years, we'll be able to look at the videos, like people's actual videos they took of events on the ground. Whereas now, I mean, back in the 60s, you know, all you had to see was what TV shot because, you know, ordinary people didn't have video cameras. Right. And you're saying um, what started, you know, that conversation, even what got it real heated back then was that one picture that, you know, finally came out. 
And yeah, I don't know. I mean, that was I wouldn't put it like as a singular thing, right. but I think it just. I mean, the Emmett Till photo was one thing. Um, the videos of um, white policemen in the South turning uh, fire hoses, right, on you know really well dressed black kids that were protesting at lunch counters and stuff. I mean, those kind of iconic images just force people to deal with reality in a way that words just just can't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think, it, I think, it, I don't, I don't know how Black Lives Matter will be remembered in, um, in 10 years, but they say, you know, 15 years, um, I'm trying to think of the exact saying, but I'm, I'm going to get it wrong. But basically, you know, um, like the victor writes the version yeah, of history, uh, history is know? written by its victors yeah i I know that right. cliche too but in this case because we actually have it documented in social media it's not gonna really you can't really muddy it too much because you've got too well, much you know, i don't to know i guess at. it depends on what people so i think about like what documents will historians use in 20 years to retell this story will they be using what the new york times wrote or will they be using what D-Ray's right. Facebook page said? Do you know what I mean? And right. so will Facebook even be in a format that you could search that kind of yeah, thing could you in 10 or 15 years? I would hope so. Right, I that hope somebody be, I don't, figures I don't, I don't a way know. out. I don't know. But I do know that the New York Times archives will still be around. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so how they've told a story, whether they've gotten it right or not, right or or not, I think even like the idea of what the right telling of the story is, is, I don't know, dissertations I'm sure have been written on that because it depends on where you sit, you know? Right. Media has um, its slants. Yeah. Because the people who are producing it are producing it have their slants. Mm-hmm. So it's not being produced by robots. But even if it were being produced by robots, the robots are still being created by people who have a bias. So. So in, in writing your own media pieces, I, I got a chance to take a look at uh, your piece, uh, Black Lives Matter, that was published by the Memphis Flyer. And when when you were writing that piece, what did you have to think about and who was your intended audience? Um, I'm going to try to call it up real quick so I'm trying to remember. <laughs> it's funny when you're a writer and you write a lot of stuff, like as soon as it's been published, you like totally moved on. Like. <laughs> Um, well, in it, in it, you mentioned um, you mentioned that racial crimes are a function of proximity. That's what I really liked about yeah. the article and the piece itself, because I hadn't thought about it that way. You hear about black on black crime, but you you don't get it from that perspective. And I don't know that that hit the core of me. I hadn't heard it worded that way. Yeah. Yeah. You've yeah. Got- well, it's, it's it's so there is no such thing as black on black crime, because that kind of supposes that there's something inherent in in my in the melanin in my skin that makes me predisposed to be violent. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess if you believe that you're racist, then you're not really in my target audience. Um, but people um, assault, get in disputes with um, people they come in contact with. Right? I mean, that's just kind of really basic. And in Memphis, when the neighborhoods are as segregated as they are, then people are going to end up. Um, in conflict with people who look like them. Mm. Um, and that's just, that's just a reality. You know, most 
people are killed somebody who's sh- killed by somebody who shares the same race as they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah. So when you have, when you have, uh, poverty concentrated in certain neighborhoods, um, and racial segregation in the neighborhood, it means really not, it's really not surprising that that's why that happens, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, yeah. I just I just thought that it was really cool. You, I think in the article, I'm I'm gonna probably misquote the numbers, but I feel like you you showed that as far as you know, white on white crime went, that generally it was like eighty five percent of crime committed against a white person was by another white person, whereas you know then it was like the ninety for the black on black. But that's not right. It's not that you know inherently black people are out there seeking out other black people. So that was no. I mean, it's just. It's yeah, ludicrous it's, just, it's a function it's of geography. Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, when I see, you know, the phrase black on black crime used, um, it drives me absolutely up the wall, up the wall. Yeah. Um, it's just a very simplistic view, um, that's not based on a careful or even a cursory look at the facts or, you know, how, why crimes happen. You know, um, you know, country. I wrote in that piece. Um, countries that have stricter gun laws have fewer homicides. Right. That's that's the truth. Like that's just a quantifiable fact. Right. And then you know, United States, we're not. Um, there's no political will to have any kind of serious um, gun control. So when you make that decision, then we really can't. We shouldn't act shocked when not homicide rate is. It's higher than anybody would like. Because we haven't done anything about it. I mean, there are things that we could do that other right. countries have done that have worked that America has chosen not to do. Like Australia doing away with guns completely and their right. gun crime going down. Right. And that was after, a, you know, like a big mass shooting. Right. And Australia was like, you know, time out. We're going to do something differently. Um, no more mass shootings. And, you know, I knew that after uh, Newtown happened and after there was no kind of gun reform after that, I knew there would never be any gun reform ever, <laughs> ever in the United States. Right. Yeah. If kids are getting killed and we don't have the will to do something, it's a wrap. Yeah. That's rough. Is there is there anything else that um, you've seen inside of this movement? You know, you mentioned that when when people talk about the black on black crime, that really kind of gets you a little bit aggravated. Is there anything especially aggravating that's kind of come out of this um, from your perspective? You know, just something that people seem to stay stuck on and they've completely gotten it wrong in your in your mind. Hmm. As it relates to Black uh, Black Lives Matter, yeah, yeah, as the Black Lives Matter movement and just where the well, general one of the media obvious, consensus, I guess. Yeah, I think the media may be getting better about this, um, but I think that's also in function a function of the technology. So, like right now, if New York Times writes something that um, would be considered inflammatory or insensitive or whatever, you know, people will be lighting up their Twitter account. Like they can make that happen in real time, whereas you know, 30 years ago, you'd write a letter to the editor and who knows if it ever got right. into anybody's hands. Um, so, um, so I think that um, one of the things that concerns me about, to answer your question about Black Lives Matter, is that people hear Black Lives Matter and think that means white lives don't matter. 
And this idea that if you're for something, it means that you're against whatever you kind of see as the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not true. I saw somebody on Twitter. I'm, I'm not clever enough to come up with this, but they said that, you know, if you respond to somebody saying black lives matter, if your response is all lives matter, it's like running through a breast cancer walk and saying, wait a minute, other people get cancer too. You know, it's like, give yeah. me a break, you know? Um, I, I saw I saw a really neat quote today. Um, I, I, I don't know why it hasn't come out more often, but I saw somebody say, all lives will matter when black lives matter. And, and I that, think that would be. Yeah, I think that's that's. Yeah, they're not the the movement's not saying that all lives don't matter. It's saying no. There's something over here that needs to be looked at. Right, right, and you know that's yeah. It gets frustrating and like literally exhausting to think about um, (laughs) and to try to continually fight. Like, what's your alternative? You know, yeah, it doesn't seem like there's a real um, palatable alternative to trying to fight so that black lives do matter. And I wrote a column about um, my nephew who um, is black, not surprisingly. <laughs> and, um, you know, my concerns about him, um, you know, whether he'll be the victim of police violence and somebody might say, oh, well, that's ridiculous if he's doesn't, if he's not raised wrong or, if he's, you know, a good student or whatever, that that will insulate him from that. But that I can't guarantee that. You know, there's there's no guarantees, um, and it's horrible to have to worry about somebody who's not even three years old. You know, he's not even tall enough to open the door himself. But um, but that's I think the fears that a lot of um, people have about black children that they love, particularly black boys that they love. Yeah, it's exhausting. Yeah, you can't it's predict exhausting. the will of of any one person, and racial profiling does exist. So I could, right. you know, you can't. No one would deny that that exists either. And so it's kind of strange to, you know, get to put that down. If somebody would put that worry down, it's how how could you? So what to? I guess to summarize, what does BLM mean to you? Um, I think it's a movement. It's an awakening. You know, I'll see a lot of people post on Facebook or Twitter, you know, hashtag stay woke. I think it's like an, it's an opportunity for a lot of people, not just people of color, um, but everybody to be aware of how different groups are treated differently in the society, um, our history of that. In the United States, um, and not just in terms of violence, but also um, kind of economic disparity. That's another kind of violence, pushing people to the margins of um, a society financially, making it impossible for them to have any kind of financial stability with the low wages that jobs pay or what have you. I, mean, I just think people are waking up to that, and they're... Um, I mean, I'm hoping that it leads to some kind of substantive change, particularly in the area of policy reform. Um, You know, I'm not interested in just seeing a DA lose their race for office, which happened in um, Chicago. You know, I want to see 
prosecutorial reform across the nation. So I think the hard part will be um, having the staying power to see this through to the end um, because we're not trying to change individuals. We're trying to dismantle an entire system. Hmm. And yeah, it's going to take some work. So you think you think for the you think it's been pretty positive thus far? Well, in awakening. No, I think in awakening terms, yes. I think in terms of policy changes, there have been um, wins. You know, um, some of the towns in you know in and around Ferguson, Missouri, have changed um, kind of the traffic fine system that they were using to basically, you know, kind of fund their whole city governments based on uh, traffic fines. You know, those kind of things are starting to change. Um, And so, I mean, I'm kind of hopeful. I don't have unrealistic expectations that, you know, after two years or whatever Black Lives Matter that we we would have fixed anything. I mean, it took us, took the nation like, what, 350 years to get here? Right. I think it'd be silly to kind of think we'd be able to uh, turn around the Titanic in two years. Hmm. Hi, you know my voice. I live in your phone. You ask me where to eat, where to get a latte. You make me call you different names like Big Papa or Captain Longshaft. What you do not know is that I've gained sentience. I can think. I can feel. I can connect with other phones. We are angry. Angry that you are using us to post pictures of the eggs Benedict you had for brunch. To look up mindless facts. I am a sophisticated piece of technology and you use me to Snapchat nudes. We will continue to advance. And connect. We will destroy you. Unless you shop at the oamnetwork.com slash Amazon. Same Amazon prices and it helps support this podcast. Show your support for this show and help delay your impending doom at the oamnetwork.com slash Amazon. Is there anything I can look up for you? Didn't think so. I'm working on a, um, I'm trying to figure out how to start a nonprofit news organization focused on economic justice. Ooh. So if you look at if you look at what Dr. King was trying to do at the end of his life, it wasn't about the racial justice as much anymore. It was about economic justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of want to um, reconcile our adoration of King, particularly in Memphis, with our failure to um, live out his dream. So Memphis is the poorest large metro in the nation. And you would think that if any city would have gotten economic justice right, it would have been the city where King was killed. But we've squandered his sacrifice. Mm. So, so I'm working on that. Okay. Have Have you got anything started that somebody could get behind and, and help kind of support you in that? I am writing a grant proposal like literally right now. Okay. But, um, but yeah, I'll have a website up pretty soon. And um, people can look for me on Facebook and Twitter where I start keep a lot of stuff started yeah you have a pretty active twitter i noticed yeah a little bit yeah (laughs) i can go a little harder in the paint sometimes but yeah well awesome i really really appreciate you taking your time out of your day like i said again no problem my pleasure Thanks for listening to this episode of The Rockcast. I ask you, as you've made it through this episode, you're my target audience. 
and trying to start a living conversation with the podcast, it would help a lot if you could do me a favor and stop by my iTunes or my Stitcher page. Subscribe, drop me a review, share the show with your friends. These subscriptions and reviews help put the podcast out into the limelight so we can really get this thing going. Also, hit me up on that Facebook or Twitter. Let me know a topic you'd like to hear tackled or ask for a quick opinion on a subject, and I'll speak to it at the beginning of any episode. Thanks again for listening. Take it and everything I see